0: You are listening to Blackbird Nine's Breakfast Club. I'm your host, Frederick C. Blackburn. Uh, tonight's episode is entitled uh, Paladin Days, Samurai Nights. And this is episode 90. And if you'd like to come out and join us, you can join us in the chat room at bb 9 tradingposttangocom That's bb 9 tradingposttangocom and when we look at our history, especially European history, and in the show we always start either with the beginning of the Piscean Age uh, and work forward through the last 2,000 years of Western civilization, or we go back to usually uh, what we call T6, the last great ice age, and work forward from there. It's very fascinating to look at the 10,000-foot wide-angle view of the development of warfare and how late a development this really is in taking like, again, in that uh, wide-angle lens of our long, long, glorious history. And I'm being totally truthful with that, as I think is a very glorious history. I'm not being sarcastic at all. <laughs> that uh, We survived the last great ice age and went on to create uh, Western civilization in one great year. Just one great year, as Copernicus would call it. That f- a great year is defined by that time it takes to go all the way around the zodiac and so as we were coming out of the last great ice age we entered into the aquarian age and so here we are at the end of the piscean age moving into the aquarian age or we're in the aquarian age and you know that we have made so many accomplishments in that period uh from domestication of animals to modern farming techniques so that we could feed populations, uh, that we could weather out any type of natural disaster uh, and survive uh, to creating uh, our languages, our science, our philosophies. Uh, and putting those into practice so that we have become a species that is prepared to leave its planet of origin. I mean, you really look at it that, you know, we're at that, you know, jumping off stage to set up space colonies. And it's frustrating to see this system, this Zionist system, sabotaging that organic development for what I see is a very bad plan a very bad model a model that is uh, out of time by about 6,000 years uh, I, I still maintain that the model the are using it was designed in what we call our T3 copper era period uh, and it has no place in this time however their model is very effective it's very ruthless uh, It's um, and it has done a lot of damage to what I call the great experiment but when you look at what they shriek about the most, the people in opposition to their great work, you know, their setting up of their greater Israel and Pax Judaica, is they call those people fascists. And that fascist is supposed to be one of those magic words that up there with anti-Semite and racist is, oh, that's, a, that's horrible that you would call somebody a fascist, ooh, that's terrible. But when we look at our history, European history, and the symbolism of the fascist, which is basically the individual sticks that are bound together by a leather strap, usually a red leather strap, and those are bound about an axe. You know, that symbol goes back in our history much, much further than a lot of people realize. And especially when you look at the um, original Etruscan uh, and Minoan symbols of the fascists, where it was the bifacial axe, the two bladed axe versus the more modernized Roman uh, single blade axe, like what you see in the United States the Senate and uh, House and the Congress, etc. You know, the It's that single-blade Roman, but the original was that bifacial axe. And, you know, that technology of the two-bladed axe, that's in the archaeological record going back to at least 750,000 B.C. That's 750,000 B.C. That's how far that type of blade technology goes back in the archaeological record. Okay, so that idea of having a two-bladed axe... And the symbolism there of the thing that can cut two ways. And there's that idiom of, you know, the knife that cuts two ways. It can cut towards the good or it can cut towards the bad. And this is the root of that double meaning of the blood oath, basically, of the fascists, where... You know, you definitely have this system whereby it's the, you know, the sticks. One stick is easily broken, but a bundle of sticks all aligned in the same direction, i.e. all working together for the same end goal objectives, cannot be broken and it's very, very strong. And the idea of the blood oath comes in where you swear fidelity to that order. And in exchange, you are protected by that order. But if you ever betray that order, then instead of using the face of the axe that's towards your enemies, the people you are battling with, that you unite it with to begin with, uh, or that you unite it together to go against them, whoever them happens to be, uh, you know, That's the one blade is, you know, you cut your enemy with that. But the second blade is to cut that person who betrays the order. And that theme of the double-bladed axe runs throughout pretty much (laughs) every order of. Anytime you see something, the royal order of or the order of, you know, there's going to be a blood oath involved in there somewhere that goes back to that symbol. And uh, usually the oath uh, was symbolized by whatever was marked on the leather strap that bound it together. So you would write on the leather, you know, the oath that everybody was bound to and then bind the sticks around the axe. And you would carry that to say, OK, this is the rule of law here. And everybody's in agreement of that. So, you know, the, to take that symbol of Western civilization and just a good iconic symbol. I mean, that's one of those archetypal symbols and to turn it into something bad uh is just again, that Jewish trick of demonizing their enemies and demoralizing their enemies and make them hate themselves, et cetera. And using these magic words like racism and fascist, et cetera, to make you not support their targeted enemy. So as we go through, you know, our development, you know, of Western civilization, you think 35,000 years ago, we were, we have found musical instruments. The oldest known musical instrument was in a German cave, and it was a flute made from a griffin vulture's bone. So, you know, you're thinking that many years ago, and we had musical instruments. Then, you know, 30,000 years ago, you know, cave paintings... know that we were developing art and you know that idea of record recording things and then you know 30,000 you know years you still had the uh first lunar calendars depicted uh the LaSalle Venus for example you know that you you had these calendar systems developed so you know even that long ago you still had a sophisticated culture in western civilization now In our Breakfast Club model, you know, we go through our nine layers of history. And remember, you know, T6 is the last great ice age. Then we say the gold era, which is T5, is 22,000 to 16,000 B.C. And we call that, you know, basically that's around the Paleolithic. So you're still using old Stone Age technologies, But, you know, those were very sophisticated blade technologies. And then... You know, in the silver era, 16,000 to 10,000 BC, then, you know, we move into what we call the Mesolithic or the transition state. And this is where we're moving from that hunter gathering, uh, following the herds and, uh, the weather is getting, uh, to the point where, uh, you're getting more and more vegetation, uh, so you don't have to follow the herds. You can stay put and not starve to death. Um, and also your cave-dwelling people. Remember, you had two people riding out the last ice age. One on the surface following the herds. Those were your dynamic peoples. And then you had your cave-dwellers, and those were your static peoples. And you had two very different uh systems develop out of those two models. And that really shows up, you know, in that great year history, you know, who those groups influenced. You know, you, that's your stationary cave dwelling people and your migratory herd following people. But anyway, then the Copper Era, you know, that's our T3, that's 10,000 to 4,000 BC. You know, we're seeing like bow and arrow in cave painting and domesticated dogs in cave paintings. And this is when you start seeing the beginning of the fortified cities. So, you know, you don't really have warfare going on other than these, you know, tribal type skirmishes, Yeah, but what we consider modern warfare, you're not seeing yet. Now, what's interesting in the Copper Era is that's when you start seeing the beginning of the fortified city-states, and a good example of that is like 8,000 BC is uh, when you start seeing the city of Jericho uh, being built, and that's always, you know, the teaching model of the early fortified city. Uh, in 7500 BC is when you start seeing small craft boats developed in the archaeological record. Then around 6000 BC is when you start seeing the use of metal and a lot of honeybee domestication. And you see this in the rock art, especially around Spain of the domestication of bees and using those soft technologies like basket weaving to do what we call a scap which is a type of beehive. But unfortunately, when you harvest the honey, you destroy the hive in the process. And so that's why most people don't use those anymore. But that was state-of-the-art beekeeping uh, in this, uh, what we call the T3 Copper era. And then, you know, if about 5,000 BC. That's when you start seeing the really large-scale domestication of sheep, goats, cattle, pigs. You're growing large-scale wheat, barley, lentils, peas, uh, also, your pottery work and ceramics is developing there. And that, you know, right as the Copper Era is ending and, you know, you think the last part of that uh, time frame was Gemini and, you know, the idea of the struggling twins. And this is when the Hebrew mythology puts their Genesis story uh, that then starts at the beginning of the Iron Era. Uh, which we call, you know, 4,000 B.C. to 2,000 A.D., and that started out with the uh, age of Taurus in 4,000 to 2,000 B.C. and all the symbolism there, you know, the Minoan culture, for example, uh, uh, you see a lot of bull uh, symbolism throughout the region there, and the esoteric is, of course, Scorpio. So uh, you always see the bull and then the scorpion, either the snake, the scorpion, or the eagle. That's the three signs of Scorpio. So that's when you start seeing that in all the symbolism of the various religions of the age of Taurus. And also you get this rise in the Baal uh, systems. And so you now have these alpha males, the bulls, that... would become your basically kings of your fertility cults. They are becoming your kings that would, you know, you developing this idea of kingdoms and bales or their lands that they control. That was developing there. And, you know, one thing about bulls is you can have one bull in a pasture. but If you put two bulls in, they're going to fight. And so this idea of all the other bulls, have to be turned into steers, and so that's when you also see a lot of ritual castration as well as circumcision developing during this time period. Uh, also, uh, as you're developing metal technologies, blade technologies that you could do these type of surgeries. Uh, you know that's all developing here. So, around four thousand. Is when you, know, you start seeing metal, metal smithing around in Iran and southern Eastern Europe, uh, starting with copper axes with wooden shafts, and again, those bifacial, two-bladed axes. You know that was the norm. It was just basically taking the stone technology and now replacing it with copper technology, and then they would replace it with iron technology later. Around 3500 BC, is when you start seeing wheel technologies like but it's interesting that wheel technologies developed in different areas for different reasons for example you know one area would have pottery wheels but not develop a cart other areas would develop you know horse and carts but not pottery wheels uh so it's interesting how you know wheel technology developed uh around this time in different areas now the around 3500 the sumerians began creating the first mesopotamia empire between the tigris and euphrates rivers and so this idea of you know establishing an area of an empire you know that is what uh, we start seeing happening there and of course going along with that is how do you defend your borders and that is again out of that system of the bulls you know it's how far is your territory And that idea of marking territories off, say, our tribe is here, your tribe's over there, we're going to mark it. And anybody who crosses the line, we're going to have a line skirmish. But as long as everybody stays on their side of the uh, lines, everything's fine. Well, that works fine until you have a bad year and people start getting hungry or there's a natural disaster. And then people will come across the borders in desperation. And we'll see what happens a little bit with natural disasters in this great system we're developing. Now, in 3100 BC is one of the earliest Egyptian hieroglyphics, and it's a two-foot-high palette of King Namar clubbing an enemy while battling to unite southern and northern Egypt. And so this is key because the idea of killing to establish territory. And what that would mean to the rest of this development of modern civilization and the rise of militaries and the rise of things like knights, samurai, paladins, etc. is who makes the judgment call of who can kill whom and for what reasons, when is it permissible as in battle and when is it not i.e. in uh the idea of a murder for example you know so that changing of cultural taboos of how do you set up a legal system based on the morality of taking another life and so it's interesting to see you know here is a king that is killing an enemy uh in the historical record now in 2000 a.d. Is when you see, uh, the age of Aries, the ram and the esoteric symbol of the scales. And what we see happening here during this period is that idea of legal systems. You have, you know, the idea of laws that are written down and instead of bulls, you know, now you're seeing animals like rams that are more group animals, a herd animal. And that kind of gives you your, idea of the transition from the old one alpha male chieftain and everybody else's secondary to the system where you have men that uh, aren't getting into this physical dominance it's more about who's following the game rules uh, as to who gets punished versus just that one male who always gets what he wants and everybody else has to agree or get beaten up or killed or whatever so you see that transition in the symbolism this is also when you start seeing the tales of the hero and the person who would take up arms for the quest uh, and so around 2000 is when you see this things like the story of jason and the argonauts and going out for the golden fleece and a lot of people think that the golden fleece was the mathematics of the usury system, of money system, of, you know, how to control currency uh, that was guarded by a dragon. And so that and it was a matriarchal system, uh, again, a fertility cult system that Jason the Argonauts had to steal it from. Uh, and so that idea of the men learning the secrets of those st- Priestesses, you know, that kind of is the other transition here. So instead of seeing those matriarchal high priestesses, you're now seeing the high priests and the women are becoming a secondary citizen, uh, in a lot of these cultures. And so, and especially like in uh, Hebrew culture, for example, very badly so, where it's just, you know, women were just damned uh, right out of the f- first books, you know, the story of Eve, for example. And so that was a culture shift. Also, this is where you have the Abraham story of in the Hebrew mythology of Abraham uh, taking the covenant and uh, circumcision introduced to the Hebrews. And so that rite of circumcision coming in. Uh, in 1850, the first recorded murder trial on record took place in Sumner. And it was three men killed a temple servant and the line reads, those who have killed a man are not worthy of life. So here in 1850 BC, you have this system being put in place where, okay, we can go kill those people over there and that's warfare and that's just killing our enemies for the good of our people, our tribal, you know, this is identity politics, but if it's somebody local, that's a murder trial, and that, you know, the people would scorn that, that, you know, you killed a temple servant. that's was probably considered one of the most horrible things you could possibly do, and it, that it was three ruffians that did this. Uh, I always thought it was very telling that, you know, these three uh, men killed this temple servant and were then put to death. And this echoes that Libra system of so many of these cultures that it's kind of summed up in the an eye for an eye. Um, you know, so if, you know, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye type justice systems. So a life for a life. So if you're convicted of murder, then you sacrifice your own life uh, by the new state system. In 1700 BC, the Stele of Hammurabi written to establish the local laws. uh He was the king of Babylon. So again, you're moving to this system where the rules are written in stone. And you think one of the symbols of the Hebrew mythology of Moses, the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments, they're written in stone. Here, Hammurabi, you know, putting the laws on a stele in the middle of the square. So everybody knows what the game rules are. And so uh, if you break them, there are harsh penalties. Then. All these systems were working really well, and then in 1628, Thera erupted north of Crete in the Mediterranean. This basically reduced the uh, Minoan culture to barbarism, and you see lots of people being uh, displaced during this time, lots of skirmishes on borders, lots of uh, having to defend borders. So you see this massive fortification during this time period of the armed people that were protecting the lands that weren't affected or weren't as affected as badly as those right there at ground zero, the Minoan culture. Um, In 1590, for example, the Hyksos were driven out of Egypt. Uh, And a lot of people think that that is the basis for the Hebrew myth of Moses uh, leading the Jews out of Egypt, which that doesn't stand up to the archaeological record. Uh, But the Hyksos uh, story does, and it's about the same timeline. Uh, and this is when, you know, again, the Jews claim that they got the law from Moses, the lawgiver, and it was written in the stones, you know, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, etc. Um, then in 1184, the city of Troy falls. And here uh, is significant because the uh, statue of Athena. Or Athena, who was there to safeguard the city of Troy was called a Palladium. And when that fell, uh, there was a sense of great betrayal that, you know, they no longer had the protection of Athena there. And it's interesting that later on, uh, during the uh, beginnings of things like the Illuminati and Albert Pike's uh, Freemasonry of the Scottish Rite and stuff, he started a new Palladium Rite and we'll uh, talk, we've talked about that in previous shows on Freemasonry, but you know, it's just that where that word is coming from and you know, the root words of that uh, and where a paladin comes from. Then, also uh as we keep moving through here is around 640 BC is when the first metal coins start showing up around Lydia and Asia minor. So the idea of instead of having credits at the temple that could be wiped out because you irritated the priest or somebody's found you guilty of something, you know, moving to this idea of independent coin currency that you could move around anywhere and exchange those coins those gold coins or silver coins or copper coins or whatever for things you needed and so that was the beginning of the uh, independence from those temple systems that was developing this time but also was developing the foundations of what would become merc- known as mercenaries or a sword for hire is the person who is skilled in various forms of, you know, uh, keeping order to killing, et cetera, uh, for a price. And so, you know, the idea of uh you know a hired gun and what does that mean is it, you know the person that just works for gold or for a cause and so you know this idea of an independent money system suddenly money becomes power uh and you can do things to make more money and one of those things was to become a mercenary for hire and build up these you know commercial armies that would stay loyal as long as you kept paying them. But the second you you ran out of money, then they would turn on you immediately because they had no loyalty other than money. Now, in 0 AD, of course, we moved to Pisces and Virgo. And, uh, of course, you know, we talk about 70 AD, the temple falls in Jerusalem to Rome, and that war never ended. (laughs) That's one of the things you have to learn is the Jews are still fighting that war and we're going to lose that war unless we get our heads in through the game because they do want revenge for that. And they blame all of us, the sins of the fathers, etc. It's all throughout their um, uh, dogma. But about the same time that the temple was being destroyed and Rome was waging war on these Jews that refused to assimilate and to carry out their uh, culture if you will uh, that gets them thrown out everywhere they go uh, the revelation of St. John is supposedly being written so it was around the same time uh, the revelation of St. John and there's a curious passage in chapter 13 verse 10 of that and I always think about this when I look at the fourth-generation warfare tactics that we're fighting today. And I always see this as kind of a heads-up warning about the traps that we would fall into during the next shift, i.e. moving from the Piscean Age to the Aquarian Age. You know, that's when you know, this book was written about is that change of those two, uh, epics. And, uh, anyway, the chapter 13, verse 10 says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. Captivity, captivity for those who are destined for captivity, the sword for those who are to die by the sword. That is why the saints must have constancy and faith. so, if anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. Captivity for those who are destined for captivity. The sword for those who are to die by the sword. This is why the saints must have constancy and faith. So, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit when we're talking about, you know, our modern paladins, our modern uh warriors out there. Uh, that are trying to fight the good fight and the traps that you're going to run up to, run up against in this rigged system. And so I just think that that was a very interesting line. Now, as Christianity moved into Europe, uh, it's interesting that in 800, Charlemagne was crowned emperor of Rome. And the word paladin was used to describe his 12 peers, which was his chief warriors of his court. And those were, they were called paladins. And the first time it's used is in uh, the poem, The Song of Roland. Uh, but yeah, that idea of the paladin of the spiritual warrior. But it's interesting if... Um, you know a lot of people are really questioning charlemagne at this point is was this a good thing for europe or a bad thing for europe and so uh i wonder now you know were those paladins europeans or were they jewish and uh been much the way as the knights templar so many of those so-called french knights weren't french at all they were you know, Jews that were trying to figure out how to get Jerusalem back and they became the Knights Templars. And so, uh, that's it. Inter- you know, so if anybody has done research on those 12 original paladins or the 12 peers and sees anything, uh, please let me know because that's one of the things as I was researching this that, you know, as a kid, I was always taught, you know, Charlemagne with the paladins and that was a great thing. These were the noble Knights uh of christendom and uh then you know i just question that now so in 905 to 914 this is when you have the first recorded use of the word samurai in japan so this idea of the trained warrior class as the noble art and held in the highest esteem by the leaders uh that has developed in Japan as well in the form of not the knight or the paladin, but as the samurai. And so the first uh, recorded use of that is in uh, the Kokin Wakashu, which is the imperial anthology of poems. And so that's when you start seeing the samurai culture developing. Now, in 1040, the Song of Roland was written... And of course, this is about the Battle of roncevaux Pass, and, uh, in 778, which was one of those key, uh, battles which established Charlemagne's court. Um, and then in 1084, Pope Gregory names the Knights of Robert Cusard the Knights of Christ. And so now you have a Pope knighting people. And the idea of serving by any you know lethal means that leadership, and so uh, the I guess yeah, it's just interesting to see this rise of a holy warrior class of people that have state authorization to carry out legal uh, homicide in the name of whatever cause. And, um, you know, in 1118, Pope Innocent III names the knighthood of God as the ninth Templar. And then, of course, in 1126, we know that they returned from Jerusalem and immediately set up the international banking system for the Priory of Zion and eventually got thrown out of Europe. Uh, But, again, that's, you know, who were the Knights Templars really serving? Were they serving the church or were they serving the Priory of Zion? Uh, And that's part of the problem with joining any system where you are doing a blood oath, especially if you don't know who the leadership is, if it's one of those hidden cabal organizations, you know you have no idea who you are actually reporting to, other than the fact that if you betray the order, they're going to kill you. Uh, but as long as you do what you are told and follow directions, then you'll be taken care of. Uh, in eleven twenty eight, the first recorded dubbing of a knight. Geoffrey of Anjou takes place and that's very interesting in the symbolism of taking either the king's sword and tapping the knight on the shoulders back and forth or taking the knight's own sword and tapping them on the shoulders, especially when you realize that so many of the systems, especially the samurai systems was a skull cult in the sense of you would cut off your enemy's head and bring it back to your leadership, whoever that leadership was, be it the emperor, be it the king, whatever, to prove that the enemy had indeed been killed and a lot of times that head would be put on a spike as a trophy and a warning uh, to any other enemies of the empire the kingdom etc and so the idea of letting somebody come that close to cutting off your head uh, as a show of faith and trust Uh, that's a very significant ritual because, like I said, you know, so many of these systems with a warrior military class, you know, it was about literally counting skulls and you got paid for the type of skulls that you, uh, retrieved. And that's a very interesting part of the samurai culture. Uh, but that also was in a lot of the systems in the Middle East and in Europe, where you know you had to show proof that the person was killed, and you did that not by hauling the entire body back, but by bringing the head. Also, to ensure that there wasn't a fake death, a lot of uh, people have faked their death, and this is part of that Jewish system: is uh, to fake a death by using chemicals, uh, especially plants, to make it look like you're dead and then revived with an antidote or when it wears off, and then you just go someplace else and take on a new identity. And so when you cut somebody's head off, it's, you know, you know, it's, they're definitely dead. Can't really fake that. Um, then, uh, the, in 1140 AD, the Knights Hospitallers were incorporated as a military order, uh, in 1240, the order of chivalry is written. Then one of the interesting developments now that the priories on in the Knights Templars have their system going into place and basically become an organized crime ring in Europe and putting all the Royal families, uh, under pressure to either, you know, cooperate and pay up your debts that you uh, owe uh, or will give you the treatment. And so you suddenly start seeing all of these order ofs pop up over Europe between Europeans that are trying to protect themselves against the hidden hand in the form of the Templars in the Priory of Zion. So... In thirteen thirty, you had the Order of the Band founded by Alfonso the Not. Excuse me, the Eleventh of Castile. In thirteen forty nine, the Knight Order of the Garter was founded by Edward III in England. That's a very famous one. Thirteen fifty one, the Order of the Star was founded by John the Good in France. Thirteen fifty two, the Order of the Knot was founded by Louise of Naples or Louise Louise. Um. Louis, Excuse me, Louis of Naples. um, 1355 ordered the Golden Buckle founded by Emperor Charles IV. Um, And, you know, a lot of those orders still exist to this day. And it's basically getting back to that fascist model of people coming together and binding themselves for mutual protection and mutual gain against a common enemy. And, of course, that common enemy has long been the hidden hand of this jewish system uh, now in literature the idea of the knight starts to appear in 1375 the story sir gawain and the green knight appears in europe uh, then of uh, another organization 1430 the order of the golden fleece uh, is founded by philip the good of burgundy Now, couple of developments. um, uh, For example, in 1431, just as a reference point, that's when Joan of Arc was burnt at the stake. In In 1456, the Gutenberg Bible was published via movable type printing press. And, of course, this allowed the scriptures to move out of the monopoly of the priest class into the people that could afford to buy books at the time. So it's this idea of moving that material out into the population. And also, uh, if you have a book to read, you can learn how to read, and then you can teach somebody else how to read. And so, you know, one book could... You know, be used to teach an entire village how to read. Um, in, on the darker side, you know, at this point, the Priory Zion and the Knights Templars have had whatever they found beneath the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, uh, they've had it for enough time to start deciphering it and they start developing what's the modern Talmud, the Kabbalah, the Zohar, and also In 1458, the book of the sacred magic of Abramel and the mage is written in Hebrew and distributed throughout Europe. And that is basically the gangster handbook. It's, you know, how do you basically take out, get rid of your enemies, and how do you make people uh, obey your will? And um, it's kind of like that word abracadabra, you know, what I say, I will will it to be kind of thing. Um, and just kind of gets into that intransigent mindset of the Jews we see throughout in this rise of world Zionism that they feel they can use any means necessary to achieve their end goals. Um, and black magic was one of the tools. In 1470, Mallory writes La d'Arthur or The Death of Arthur. And this introduces the Arthurian legend. And uh, also the Knights of the Round Table and the idea of the noble knight fighting for the ideals and the rule of law and doing things because it should be done and defending the weak against oppression and tyranny. And, um, you know, and again, this was one of those things that the cultural Marxists have basically destroyed. With feminism, that you know Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and Camelot, the whole thing was bad because it destroyed the matriarchal cultures of Great Britain, et cetera, and uh, just really have turned Arthurian legend on its head, um, and that you know um, that's just very different now. Then, when I was a child learning about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and the whole story of uh, the death of Arthur. Um, then in 1485, Caxton prints the death of Arthur and it just, of course, becomes sensational throughout Europe. In 1540, the Society of Jesus is formed and the male members called themselves Jesuits. And so this is one of those other... Orders within christianity of uh, the jesuits that became um, quite a power system unto itself that we're seeing even today um, in 1592 the word paladin is used in english for the first time in a work called delilah by samuel da- daniel and so this introduces the word paladin to the english language uh, of course then In 1717, the Grand Freemason Lodge of England is established, and like I was saying earlier, in 13, I mean 1737, the Order of Palladium is founded in Paris, and later on, Albert Pike and all of his crew would use that system, uh, with their Scottish Rite system, and, uh, to basically carry out this great work, as they call it. Now, when we look at uh, that history and compare it to the development of warfare. And so William S. Land is the person who basically tagged the term fourth-generation warfare. And he's also the person who wrote the novel Victoria, a novel of fourth-generation warfare in which a group of Christian Marines leads an armed rebellion against political correctness in the United States. Of course, that endeared him to the Zionists to no end. Uh, I have not read it, but it seems like it would be a very good uh, book to read because he's a very brilliant uh, game theorist and military strategist. And his work on fourth generation warfare is pretty much the standard, but he basically breaks down first generation warfare as ancient and post classical battles fought with mass manpower using line and column tactics by uniform soldiers governed by the state. So that's what he calls first generation. And as we saw the development uh, in our timeline, you can definitely see that, yes, that was the model that most of these city-states used uh, for their militaries. And then second-generation warfare was uh, early modern tactics used after the development of the rifled musket and breech-loading weapons and continuing through the development of machine gun and indirect fire weapons like You know, mortars and cans where you're calculating a trajectory rather than line of sight. So you're using actual physics to hit a target rather than line of sight technologies. And that was coined by the U.S. military in 1989, second generation warfare. Then third generation is late modern technology derived tactics of leveraging speed, stealth and surprise to bypass the enemy's lines and collapse them from the rear. So this gets into the idea of ending linear warfare and getting into this asymmetrical warfare to outmaneuver your opponent and rot his base, you know, uh, demoralize him from behind his own lines. And this is when you start seeing the fifth column tactics like, you know, the we're. In the United States, the ADL, the SPLC, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, you know, all of these, you know, NGO groups are fifth columns to go in and demoralize behind enemy lines to soften up your targets uh, on so that your lines will collapse from the rear, not from the front. Now, fourth generation is where we are in this new war is decentralized forms of warfare, blurring the lines between war and politics, combatants and civilians, and the nation state is at all is losing its monopoly on combat forces. So you have players here that aren't conscripted conscripted military people. They aren't uh conscripted knights. You know, they are not on the payroll, but they are a player. Now they might be paid by somebody else's state but, um, you know, the state no longer has a monopoly on combat forces. And what's interesting is that in fourth generation warfare, you're actually returning to the modes of conflict that were common at that transition of what we talked about, T3, the Copper Era, of that early city state, the fortified city state towns like Jericho, where you're defending them. So, uh, versus an entire nation. So you're basically, uh, having to be atomized and then group into these cells, if you will, of identity politics. And it's these cells that are now working against each other. So what does this mean for all of you modern Paladins out there, you modern samurai, you modern knights uh, that see that we are indeed at a war. Like we always say, whether you like it or not, every person on this planet is currently at war. It's just a different type of war. So how do you try to fight the good fight? Like we talked about, you know, securing, <laughs> you know, our... Posterity, you know, that our children will have a place to grow up that will be civilized, not a third world nightmare or, a, you know, some post-apocalyptic nightmare like what the Jewish science fiction writers have been feeding us for the past 50 years. Uh, you know, that they have a hopeful and happy future where their needs are provided for, where they can pursue their ambitions and have a fair game uh, while they're doing it. You know, how do we fight this hidden hand enemy and not fall into all of these Kafka traps like we see so many of our brave young men and women falling into, that uh, the second they can come, get you on a hate speech crime you're in jail game over you know the one poor guy who put the bacon on the mosque you know they killed him in prison um you know so how can you be an effective spiritual warrior and not fall into these traps uh that are being set but at the same time protect yourself your family, your extended family, your community, your neighborhoods, your towns, your states from this Zionist nightmare. And so, you know, that is, you know, where we are. And uh, that is like the basis of so much of my work is trying to figure out the strategies that are being used against us in these new fourth generation uh, tactics and not only to uh, create defenses against them you think you know your sword and shield you've got to have that defense you know you've got your body armor you know you might not be wearing barbie armor but think about you know your body armor you're equipped to do whatever you need to do you've got your shield uh to protect you and, you know, what is that shield? Is, you know, that shield of virtue? It's not a cliche. You know, what are your virtues? What is it that you stand for? And then, you know, that sword of truth that, you know, what is it you're fighting for? And that, you know, truth is what the enemy fears the most. And how to cut through the censorship and uh, the cognitive dissonance and the uh, paid uh ca- um, ca- paid opposition you know the uh, controlled opposition you know how to cut through that with the truth so that people will listen to you and shift that Overton window and then they will start to see the war in front of them and one of the biggest tactics we can use is what I always call starve boss. You know, the beast of Zion, great and powerful, starve it, don't feed it, don't give it what it's wanting. And we know that they have the game rigged. So we have to be clever enough to get around the traps. And when we do fall for one of the traps, like uh, the gentleman uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, that, uh, the, you know, Canton, that they are making an example of him uh to no end and that's the thing they're trying to scare people into submission but i think it's having the opposite effect but you know once you get riled up and you get that fire in your belly you know don't be stupid uh you know you've got to be as you know what is it Of sending you out among the wolves you have to be as gentle as lambs and as clever as serpents you know whether you believe that or not you know that or from, if, whether you believe the source of that or not is another story, but that is such a clever strategy, especially on top of the warning that you, know, you read in St. John about, you know, the sword for those who are to die by the sword. If you go out with, you know, playing Rambo, they're going to gun you down and Use it against us. This would be another white supremacist Nazi trying to terrorize those poor, eternal, innocent victims. Uh, you know, the cage for those who are destined for the cage, you know, don't give them an excuse to throw you in a cage. Um, and the people that are in the cage, you know, do all you can to not only keep up with them, to keep them uh, their spirits up while they're in the cage. But, you know, you're working on the outside to get them out of the cage. Uh, and we see so many of our people that like, you know, Ursula Haverbeck, you know, they're going to throw her in a cage for two years now. And it's just because she's thinking the wrong things and the Jews don't like it. It's in, you know, her truth violates that Jewish mindset. So she had to be made an example of just to show how ruthless they can be. And so, you know, how can we work to get her out and to draw attention to this to make them lose political capital? And that's the thing is, you know, make your opponent, your enemy lose in the public opinion field. So, now, um, it's interesting, yeah, we go back and all the shows I grew up with, I put in the playlist of the idea of the uh, paladins and the person who has left an order, for example, and... Is out to try to just work for the good to help other people, uh, with their problems. And so, uh, for example, just, uh, shows I remember in 1949 to 1957, of course, you had the Lone Ranger TV series with Clayton Moore as the Lone Ranger. In 1957 and 1959, you had Zorro, which is produced by Walt Disney and ABC. Uh, In 1957 and 1963, Have Gun, Will Travel, uh, which was a guy who called himself a paladin. And it's interesting, in that series, Gene Roddenberry wrote 24 of the 225 episodes of that paladin series. Uh, in 1985 to 1989, there was a show with Edward Woodward called The Equalizer. And he played an ex-intelligence operative who was now helping people um, in a sense, I guess, of a, uh, his own atonement. And then, of course, who can forget the 1983 to 1987 series uh, from NBC, The A-Team. Um, that show about a special forces unit out doing good together resonated with so much of the world. It was amazing how... Popular that show was um, and it just kind of defies description but you know that was again you know there's part of our psyche that wants those heroes to come riding in over the hill and save the day and that's part of how we're wired in western civilization and the fascinating part is that you have so many people That are those first responders, those people on the scene that come in and save the day. And what we're seeing with all these hurricane relief emergency, uh, efforts is that case in point. Yeah, they might not have, you know, shining armor. They might not have a battle lance, but you know, they're coming in and saving the day for people who need it help. And in asymmetrical warfare, you are surrounded by people that need help. So you have to develop your skill sets and develop your teams and your crews together to go out and do battle, clever battle, in this new asymmetrical warfare environment that we are working our way through right now. So with that said, I'd like to thank everyone for coming out to the Trading Post tonight. I'm your host, Frederick C. Blackburn, and I hope everyone has a wonderful week. And until next time, I will see you all at the rendezvous.